0: Okay the last thing we're going to do before we jump in is we're going to do something different for the next four weeks um, and maybe you've been to a church that does this but we're talking about Jesus I know um, but specifically one big Jesus story every week and so we're going to read that passage at the beginning I'm going to have Michelle read it now and we're going to stand um, for the reading of the of scripture and then at the end she's going to be this she's going to say this is the word of the Lord and if you want you can say thanks be to God it's something that a lot of churches do, and we're just going to do that for the next four weeks. So we're going to read John 4.
1: All right, this is John 4, 5 through 26. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sicar, near the property that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, worn out from his journey, sat down at the well. It was about six in the evening. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Give me a drink, Jesus said to her, for his disciples had gone into town to buy food. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? She asked him. For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God and who is saying to you, give me a drink, you would ask him and he would give you living water. Sir, said the woman, you don't even have a bucket and the well is deep. So where do you get this living water? You aren't greater than our father Jacob, are you? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and livestock. Jesus said, "'Everyone who drinks from this water "'will get thirsty again, but whoever drinks "'from the water that I will give him "'will never get thirsty again, ever. "'In fact, the water I will give him "'will become a well of water springing up "'within him for eternal life. "'Sir,' the woman said to him, "'give me this water so I won't get thirsty "'and come here to draw water. "'Go call your husband,' he told her, "'and come back here. "'I don't have a husband,' she answered. "'You have correctly said I don't have a husband,' "'Jesus said.' For you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Sir, the woman replied, I see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, yet you, Jews, say that the place to worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus told her, believe me, woman, an hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, because salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. I am he, Jesus told her, the one speaking to you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
0: Um, There is a false dichotomy out there that um, worship or worshipers are people that gather in a place like this, at a time like this, and and non-worshippers are doing other things like brunch or sleeping in. Um, There's a false dichotomy out there that uh, worship or ascribing worth, which is what worship is, um, that happens in places like this, but it doesn't happen to the the people out there, um, maybe with more elevated consciousness. Um, They aren't doing those things. They're not worshiping. And guys, that's not true. We all are worshiping something. Everyone uh, on this planet is worshiping. They're giving worth to something. And whether that is a deity uh, or for us, it's Jesus, or if that's something else, everybody is worshiping something. This is not just a time of worship and everything that's happening out there is not worship. We're all worshiping something and we're all worshiping Someone And Philip Yancey, he says this, he says, A society that denies the supernatural usually ends up elevating the natural to supernatural status. A society that denies the supernatural usually ends up elevating something that is not supernatural to that status. If you don't believe me, um, go to a Bengals game. And yeah, black and orange painted chess, all of that. Uh, or go to an Apple store at the time of a new iPhone release. Um, go to the release of a new Fast and Furious movie. I don't know what your thing is. Um, okay, that one's mine. We're all worshiping something. And, uh, and so sometimes we can fall into this, or the world has fallen into this false dichotomy that this is worship and out there is something else. And that's just not true. Um, Adam Grant, he is a popular author right now. He wrote an article in the New York Times um, post-COVID, kind of analyzing what this post-COVID world was, and he said um, so many people clinically actually are depressed, but he said there's also this middle ground where they're not depressed, we're not depressed, but also we're not fulfilled, and he was looking for like what is that middle ground, what's it called, and he came up with this term, I mean it's not a new word, but he said people are just languishing, they're not fulfilled, we're not fulfilled, but we're also not technically depressed, we're somewhere in the middle, we're languishing we're looking for the thing that we can actually give our life to and the bible says this the bible says that you the god god has put eternity in our hearts he's put eternity in our hearts and i'm not a prosperity gospel guy but i'll say this i think god is deeply interested in giving you the desire of your heart but the deepest desire of your heart of our hearts is him he's put eternity our hearts, And God is so interested in giving us, fulfilling the deepest desires of our hearts. Revelation 5.12, this is how this whole thing is going to end. It says that there were angels and living creatures and elders and thousands upon thousands upon thousands. Read Revelation 5. It's this incredible picture of heaven. And it says all of that's going to be there and we're all going to be singing. All of these people, these creatures, these elders, everything's going to be singing, worthy is the lamb that was slain. To receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. So this is what your future, if you're in Christ, this is what your future looks like. So when we worship, when we enter into worship, we are tapping into an eternal part of us. When we worship, we're tapping into part of our eternal purpose. Because this is, in part, what we'll be doing for the rest of our lives. Revelation 5 says this is a glimpse into your future, and so worship is something that we get to do here that actually taps into an eternal purpose in us later on and all the way in heaven and on the new earth. Worshiping Jesus is an eternal purpose, and so um, this series, which I kicked off last week, we're going to be digging into, we're calling it um, just Wholehearted, which is about four months in now, But we're looking specifically at the life of Jesus. And what we're doing is we're taking one big Jesus story to pull out one big Jesus characteristic and figuring out who was this man. And we're going to be digging maybe a little deeper than um, some of the, the characteristics or qualities that we know of Jesus. And early followers of Jesus, they weren't called Christians, but when they started, they were called the way. It was just called the way. And so what we're basically digging into right now is what is the way of Jesus? What does it look like? Um, to follow him more closely. What were the characteristics that we want to model? And so we're going to be talking about um, Jesus, and this is next week, Jesus, the way of mourning. It's going to be good. Jesus, the way of connection. Jesus was one of the most deeply connected people to ever walk the earth, the deepest connected. So Jesus, the way of connection. Jesus, the way of confrontation. And this morning, we're talking about Jesus, the way of worship. Jesus modeled a way for worship that we can now be invited into. And the whole point of this series, the whole point of why we're talking about these four characteristics of Jesus is not so that we can win Bible trivia, not so that we can show off in our house groups, but it's so that we can follow him closer. And in the phrase I said last week is we want to see him more clearly. We want to pull back a little bit more of the curtain. Again, not so that we know more, but simply so that we know him more and we can follow him closer. So we want to know him. We want to see him more clearly so that we can follow him more fully. Does that make sense? So we're going to jump in, and Michelle just read it, but I'm going to read um, and kind of go through verse by verse what is happening in John 4, because it's one of the best illustrations of Jesus modeling what worship is. Um, So he he and his disciples, they're passing through an area of um, the country called Samaria, and we'll get to that in a second. It says, Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, worn out from his journey, sat down at the well, which I really empathize with jesus he was about my age um as old as i am now and he's traveling with a bunch of teenagers and he sends them into town to get food after a journey from jerusalem all the way to samaria which i really like empathize i helped some friends move this weekend and there's a reason i'm sitting it's not just so i can look more sophisticated like i'm feeling the effects of being the age that jesus was here and jesus takes on flesh fully human and he's tired And he sends the teenagers off to get food. And so he sits down at a well because he's tired. And a woman of Samaria came to draw water. Give me a drink, Jesus said to her. For his disciples had gone into town to buy food. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? She asked him. For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. And a little bit of history here. um, Just to get the context of what Samaritan versus Jew means. In 722 B.C., Uh, The divided kingdom of Israel, so there was a civil war after the reign of King David and King Solomon, where it was the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom. 722, the Assyrians took over the northern kingdom. And what they did is they didn't just conquer Israel militarily, but they wanted to conquer it culturally. So they took it over, and then they replanted those people back in that land, which is now Samaria. Replanted them there, but also replanted them with their people and their gods and their culture. And, and what these people did is they started to intermarry with the Assyrians and with other cultures. And that was something that God said you can't do. And this wasn't racially inspired, and that sounds outdated to us right now. It wasn't racially inspired that God said don't intermarry, but it was religiously inspired. Because he said, if you do this, if you intermarry with these people, you will start to take on their habits and you'll start to take on their gods and I can totally see how that would happen because who you spend your most time with is who you're going to become like. I have been married for nine and a half years and I've started to take on some of the habits. Luckily we had the same God but I've started to take on some of the habits of Catherine. Uh, In the last nine and a half years I've come to enjoy an evening stroll which 10 years ago sounded like a complete waste of time. Uh, Catherine has introduced me to her habit of comfy clothes which the first couple years of our marriage I, like, made fun of, and then I'm like, oh, no, this is better. (laughs) I have an outfit that's just for home. Um, I've taken on, I spend a lot of time with Catherine. I've taken on some of her habits. But when you do that, you can also take on some of the, like, evil, terrible habits of the person around you as well. I've done that. (laughs) Guys, I've eaten quinoa more than one time. (laughs) I know. I know. I know. It's like rice and dirt had a baby. And it's a habit that I have taken on from my wife. And so I believe God, because he's God, but I believe God when he says, don't intermarry with them. You're going to take on their culture. You're going to take on their habits. You're going to take on their gods. And what do you know? God's right. They did. And so they started to mix a little bit of Judaism, which was the worship of the one true God, with a little bit of paganism, and started to bring in other gods and other traditions and other cultures, and all of a sudden, now you have what the Jews called them, which were half-breds. They were half-in for God, they were half-not-in for God. They were half-Jewish, but then they started to mix with other people. Again, not racially inspired, but spiritually inspired. And so they had started to mix their religions, and part of what the Samaritans had done because they were now no longer in the southern part of the kingdom, which is where Jerusalem was, is they started to rewrite scripture based on what would be convenient for them. So first they got rid of any other book of the Old Testament, which was their scripture, other than the first five books of Moses. Because they said, we don't want David, we don't want Jerusalem, none of that matters anymore. And they then started to rewrite some of the first five books. They said, look, we know that uh, Abraham almost sacrificed Isaac and we know that it was on Mount Moriah. But they said, no, it was on Mount Gerizim, which was in Samaria, which is the mountain that they were on now, Jesus and this woman. And they started to rewrite some of the scripture. They started to kick out some of the scripture. Again, I know we would never do anything like that at this day and age. But they started to do that and they ended up with a little bit of a religion that looked more like them than it looked like God. This was the moment, this was the place that Jesus was coming into when he went through Samaria. And Jesus' ministry was relatively short, right? It was three and a half years. But John said at the end of his gospel, if you read, if I would have written down everything, that, uh, all of the things that this guy did, I, I wouldn't have enough books in the world to contain it. So apparently Jesus did a lot, but John shortened it to this biography that we have here. And that makes me imagine that whatever Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John chose to write down, that must be important. It must reveal something about the character of Jesus. And so this is the longest monologue Jesus has with anybody. And so we want to dig into what characteristic of Jesus comes out of this. Comes out of this interaction with this woman. And here's what I think it is. That there is no cultural barrier or spiritual distance too far for God to bring you to worship him. This woman was about as far as you could get. Not only was she a Samaritan, but we find out she's not really even like that moral of a Samaritan. Like She's got her own stuff going on. There's a reason that she's there at 6 and not in the morning. And so there is no spiritual distance or cultural barrier that God can't get to to bring us in to worship him. Jesus said, everyone who drinks from this water will get thirsty again, but whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again ever. In fact, the water I will give him will become a well of water springing up within him for eternal life. Sir, the woman said to him, Give me this water so I won't get thirsty and come here to draw water again. Jesus is using a physical reality of this woman's life to illustrate something spiritual. And she doesn't quite get it yet. She's like, man, that'd be great. I'd love to not come here ever again. I'd love to have water that sustains me forever. And Jesus starts to use a physical reality to illustrate something spiritual that's going on in her life. And here's what this woman was. She was an outcast. The women went to the well in the morning, but there was obviously something about her that made her not welcome, even with the other women that would gather water early in the morning. This woman was an outcast, and she's trying to solve a temporary social problem, being here in the evening, drawing water, and Jesus says, no, I want to deal with an eternal problem that's going on in your life. She's solving a temporary social problem. Jesus gets to the heart of the eternal problem in her And he says, go, I love this, this is where it gets juicy. He says, go call your husband and come back here. I don't have a husband, she answered. You have correctly said, I don't have a husband, Jesus said, for you've had five husbands. And the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Now, when we worship, we tap into an eternal purpose. But every now and then, worship is more than just an invitation. Sometimes worship is a confrontation. And this is what Jesus is doing here. Before he fully invites her in to worship him, she says, I gotta con-, he says, I have to confront some things about your life. So worship isn't just an invitation. Sometimes it's a confrontation into the pieces about us that are between us and fully worshiping God. And Jesus says, go call your husband. And then he says, actually, I know that you have had five husbands and the man you have now is uh, the sixth man is not your husband. And in 1 Corinthians 12, it lays out all the supernatural gifts um, of the Holy Spirit. There's nine of them. This is what Paul would call a word of knowledge. And a word of knowledge where God tells you something that you could not have previously known otherwise. So a word of knowledge is not, I just believe that God loves you because I knew that previously. Jesus gets a word of knowledge inspired by the Holy Spirit that says, this woman's had five husbands, and the man that she has now is uh, not her husband but is the sixth. And so Jesus, inspired by the Holy Spirit, remember, fully human, inspired by the Holy Spirit, gets a word of knowledge that leads to the proclamation of the gospel. So a recap of where we are. This woman says, I would love some of that water. She is so primed for evangelism, so primed for a gospel presentation. She's about to pray the prayer. And then Jesus says, go, go call your husband. And this is the moment that you're like, oh, Jesus, this was going so well. You were doing so good. This is the moment when you invite your friend to church and the pastor preaches on money. I know. It happens every time. Oh, man, we had such a good opportunity here. And you ruined it. You blew it, Jesus. She was so ready to pray the prayer. Her hand was halfway up. This was going to be awesome. And Jesus says, go call your husband. Because Jesus will confront the parts of us that are keeping us from fully worshiping him. It's the most loving thing that he can do. It's not to just get her to pray this prayer or do this thing or uh, identify with his following. He, he says, no, if you really want to worship me, I'm going to confront the parts of you that are keeping you from having a full interactive relationship with me. Jesus confronts the part of her in that moment. He says, go get your husband. Um, if you were at the well with Jesus, I think this is a good reflection, what would Jesus tell you to go get Go get your blank. We should talk about your blank. Go bring your... What's the the part of your life, what's the part of my life, that if we were sitting at this well with Jesus, he would say, I want you to go get your blank. Because he hits on the deepest, darkest part of her life. And says, I want you to go do that. And somehow, she comes back with more dignity than she started with. Because Jesus will confront us, but he'll never condemn us. So Jesus confronts this woman, but he does not condemn her. And somehow, and this is only an explanation, that apparently the Holy Spirit is in these moments where she gets called out and she comes back with more dignity. She comes and she isn't condemned, but she's excited from getting this moment with Jesus. This is the product of a supernatural God where Jesus can say the hardest possible thing to her, and she actually increases in dignity because of the way he treated her. He confronts, but he never condemns. Sir, the woman replied, I see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, yet you Jews say that the place of worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus told her, believe me, woman, an hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Jesus says it's not where, but it's who. There's coming a time where the where will be way less important. Yes, right now it is supposed to be in Jerusalem. It's not on Mount Gerizim. It's on Mount Moriah. That is true. But there's coming a moment where worship won't be about where, but it will be about who, which is a good word. We've been in this building for like a year. Good word for any of us that are starting to like claim a pew now. Yeah, you know. Like this is, this is my pew. And what's so funny is what if God speaks so clearly in the first three rows? All Smiths, you guys are going to be so blessed. Nobody else nobody else wants to be up here. But um, Jesus starts to say, guys, it's not, a, it's not about where. It's all about who. Who are you worshiping? He says, it's not going to be on this mountain. It's not going to be on that mountain, but who? And um, actually, I, w- I know I wanted to say this at some point. We had our second anniversary last year or last week. And um, I did want to say just uh, for everyone that was here and everyone that's been around for a while, it has been so fun. Yes, last week was so fun. It was so fun to celebrate together together. And it was one of the best Sundays that we've ever had. Um, And again, if you missed it, I'm so sorry. You can go back and watch it. But it was just fun to celebrate together. And so many of you um, were so encouraging about, like, the spoken word I did at the end. I got emails and texts. And, yes, it was awesome. And as the week went on, I realized, did anybody listen to the 30-minute sermon I talked about Jesus before that? Uh, It was, like, all I've heard about is, like, oh, that spoken word was so fun. So, Uh, Point taken. But I also did say something in the middle of the message. I said, guys, we're a church with two front doors. um, And if you are just here on Sundays but you're not in a house group, you're getting exactly one half of what this church has to offer. And I encourage you to get in a house group. And before this, and again, a window into my world, there's two numbers I really care about as the pastor of this church. Number one is baptisms. We baptize nine people. Number two is what percent of adults are here on a Sunday versus in a living room Monday through Thursday." And uh, this summer we like set a record. It was crazy. We had 83 adults in house group. This week we had 114. (laughs) Come on, you guys do listen to me. You got in a house group. Praise God. And 114 from 83, which somebody should do the math on that. I think it's like a 37 percent increase. (laughs) Nah, it is. I memorized it. (laughs) Guys, that's incredible. And uh, also, if you're new here and you're not in a house group, I highly, highly recommend it. It is our second front door. Mandy, who leads our house groups, Brandon, and Caitlin will all be at the Connect table. They want to find the right group for you. This is where the rubber meets the road with us. And we say we're a church with two front doors, and we really mean that. What happens in the living room is equal to what happens on a Sunday morning. And I just needed to share, like, 114 people, adults, in a house group is so amazing. That is, that percent, although I talked to a guy yesterday and he said he's been to three house groups last week, so now I'm like, hmm, uh, maybe this number's thrown off a little bit, but that's exactly <laughs> what you're supposed to do uh, because you gotta figure out what one is for you. But guys, that is awesome. It's like 88% of our adults were in a house group last week. That That is what we're after. This is, I think, what changes hearts and what changes a city is not just, uh, hopefully, a good spiritual experience here, but something that uh, helps us Meet the rubber and the road out there. So anyway, uh, Jesus is talking and he's saying, look, it's not here, it's there. And this woman at this point is probably saying something like this to herself. I just can't get past my past. I just can't get past my heritage. I can't get past the things I've done. I can't get past this big issue because Jesus says, go call your husband. And she says, okay, yeah, you've caught me. But then he says this. He says, but an hour is coming and now is here when the true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and truth yes the father wants such people to worship him god is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth again when we worship we tap into an eternal purpose also authentic worship jesus according to jesus is both candid and credible he says spirit and truth. Authentic worship of him is candid and credible. So let's talk about what does worshiping in spirit and truth mean because we throw this around a lot. It's a tension that we want to hold. We love the the merging of a couple different streams and we believe that God's presence can change everything and we want to do the slow long obedience in the same direction towards Jesus becoming more like him. We want to hold those and so what does it mean to hold spirit and truth in tension and a full moment of transparency I am usually an NIV guy. Uh, That's Pretty much every time I preach, I preach from the NIV. It's the translation that I read the most of. We've not been reading the NIV today because I don't like, it's not wrong, or it's not heretical. I don't like that they capitalize the word spirit there. So full moment of transparency, we've been reading from a different translation because I don't think that this is talking about the Holy Spirit. So in the original language in Greek, um, there is no article before spirit, which would be the so there is no, we worship in the spirit and truth. So the NIV capitalizes it, maybe what you're reading does now too. It is not heretical. It's just different, and I've been wrong so many times, it's crazy. But in my research, I actually found, I think it's talking about lowercase s, spirit. So my spirit. And again, this doesn't throw out the credibility of the Bible. I just love and hate when people are like, I can't trust the word of God because you know it's been translated so many times. Yes, it has. And when they took the 1,000-year-old doc- documents and the 2,000-year-old documents and they lo- laid them on top of each other, they are 99.5% the same. The 0.5% is um, spelling, grammar, uh, periods, commas, things like that. So, like, the Word of God has stood the test of time. But in recent translations, sometimes we're like, is it capital S, not capital S? It is not theologically significant. The same in the big one in Scripture, and now I'm just on a soapbox, uh, the big one in scripture is, man, was it one woman or two women or a group of women that found Jesus when he was resurrected? Next time a dead guy comes back to life in front of you, I want you to notice what you do. Do you stand, How many women are here? Like, <laughs> the dead guy came back to life. Like, that's what the point of the story is. And so, um, guys, scripture has stood the test of time. I like better, lowercase s, here's why, because I don't think there's um, an article in front of it. I think it's talking about our spirit. So, um, are you guys ready for like some like two minutes of seminary stuff? This is what they taught me in, be careful, this one's like, in cemetery or in seminary. They taught me (laughs) that we are tripartite beings, tripartite, three parts, body, soul, and spirit. The reason we believe this is 1 Thessalonians 5.23, Paul says, may your whole spirit, soul, and body Be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, some people say, no, we're bipartite. We are body, and then soul and spirit's all kind of one. Um, In Hebrews 4.12, it says, The word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates, even dividing, soul and spirit. So, my best guess, and most scholars agree, we are a tripartite being. You are a tripartite being, which makes you totally unique than any other created being. Angels are not that. Angels are spiritual beings. They have no body. Your dog, your cat, is not that. It has a body, it has maybe a soul or a personality, but does not have a spirit. You are uniquely created as a tripartite. There are three parts to you, which I know begs the question, will my dog or will my cat be in heaven with me? I don't know. (laughs) I don't care. I'm trying to lead a church, change some diapers. Like I'll answer that one later. I'm not really positive. Here's what I know. Jesus loves me, and there won't be any cats or dogs in my home. Praise God. So we are tripartite, which makes you unique. You are a unique, uniquely created being. Body, soul, spirit. And when Jesus says spirit, I believe he's talking about your spirit, my spirit, the spirit, the eternal part inside of me, the thing that like touches eternity. And so when he says, I want you to worship in spirit, I think it's supposed to stir something deep inside of you. Because it is possible for you to sing and to not worship. In, in Isaiah 29, God says, these people worship me with their lips, but their hearts are far, far from me. So it's possible to sing and to not actually worship. So when Jesus says, I want you to worship in spirit, I think it's candid. It's something that stirs inside of you. It's that eternal part of you that says, oh yeah, this, this is what I'm created to do. It's not just going through the act of moving your body or making, making noise with your mouth that's not worship the full depth of worship is something that starts to stir in your spirit and jesus says it's not just spirit it's not just candid but it's credible worship in spirit and truth so this woman she was sincere in her worship but she was sincerely wrong you can worship sincerely and you can be worshiping sincerely wrong truth does matter but it also is that candid part of you that spirit so she was this woman The thing that Jesus confronts in her is not just her sin, but also the the misgivings of her heritage. Like, you've been doing this wrong. The Samaritans, you have been doing this wrong, but there's still grace for you. And Jesus confronts a false theological paradigm in her and says, "This, this isn't what it's supposed to be. I want you to worship in spirit and in truth. And here's the thing about Jesus, that he will come... And he will look for points of error in us so that we can enter more fully into worshiping him. It's the love of Jesus. It's the love of Jesus that points out the things that aren't quite truthful inside of us so that we can fully worship him. Spirit and truth. Candid and the other thing I said. What was it? Credible. Credible. Thank you. (laughs) Candid and credible. Candid and credible. Spirit and truth. Jesus wants to confront the parts of us that are not fully like him sincerity is not enough and so jesus invites her into worship he invites her and he starts to elevate her vision of her life he says my well better than jacob's well my will better than your tradition and i want you this is what tells the whole story how does this end because jesus confronts her and does these things and gets a word of knowledge all of this crazy stuff and the fruit needs to be there and the whole thing ends in John 4:28, which says, Then the woman left her water jar. The whole reason that she was there. Left her water jar, went into town, and told the men, Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? Guys, catch what's happening here. She runs into town and says, Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Like, that's a good thing. That's not a good thing. But somehow the shame was gone in her. She runs into town, and the very thing that made her get water in the afternoon, not in the morning was the thing she was going bragging about because somehow Jesus confronts her and removes her shame. Jesus is so kind. So He's so good. And Jesus confronts her, but she gets to go in and she says, come see a man that taught me or told me everything that I've ever done. I'm no longer ashamed of who I am. And so if you've been confronted by, by what you feel like is God or by someone else, and you've moved into shame, that's not where God wanted you. Also, if you've been avoiding confrontation because God is love and he would never do that, that's also not where God wants you. God confronts us, but he doesn't condemn us, and he moves us into true and authentic worship of him, which is spirit and truth. And I want you to notice, if you read through the whole passage, the ways that she addresses Jesus changes, and it keeps elevating as it goes on. And she starts with calling him a Jew or sir. And by the end of the passage, she says this, the whole town says this is the savior of the world. This is who Jesus is, guys. Crazy things can happen when we worship in spirit and truth. This is a crazy thing that's in John four. Crazy things can happen when we worship in spirit and truth. Uh, before we moved here and started this church, I was the pastor of a church in Las Vegas, and we had a school of ministry attached to that church, and we would bring in like youth teams um, over the summer, and uh, and they would do worship and ministry and uh, outreach. And there was a moment one night, uh, it was the last night that they were there, this team, um, I think from California. And uh, it was not like a, an above average week. That they, I mean, they were really struggling. But the presence of God just broke in uh, the last night of worship. I wasn't, I wasn't there. Um, but I heard the presence of God came. And my friend, our worship leader that was leading at the time, his name's Amari. He's been here a couple times. He just like shouted out in the midst of worship. He said, I believe that God is healing right now. And then they went on singing. And there was a kid there that had 75% of his hearing that was gone. And at the end of worship, when all the music died down, he starts to lose his mind. Because his hearing had almost been completely restored. No, lay, no laying of hands, although God loves that. No prayers were prayed. It was simply in the middle of, of a worship moment. A kid's hearing got restored. That's crazy. Crazy. That's crazy because when we worship, we tap into the eternal part of who we are. But the thing about I- I- eternal things is when they start to fall, we start to see the kingdom of God. We start to tap into Revelation 5, and there's no, uh, there's no deafness there. There's, there's, in, there's no um, informality, infir- infirmity. There's none of those things. And so when we worship, there's something supernatural that starts to fall into this place. Worshiping in spirit and truth can cause supernatural things to happen even in a moment. No laying of hands, no prayers prayed, even though those are good things. And this kid got his hearing restored simply because worship was happening in an authentic way. When we worship, we tap into the eternal purpose of who we are. And so we're going to do that. The band can come back up. We're going to worship. And we're going to worship in spirit and truth. And uh, And here's what I want to say. It's okay to be excited or energetic in worship. It's okay to not be As well, but there is something, if we're really tapping into an eternal purpose, that means every now and then it's exciting to worship Jesus. And so we don't want to judge or say, man, they're raising their hands or they're doing this. We want to engage exactly how the Lord is leading us. Morton Lloyd Jones um, says that a characteristic of dead orthodoxy is a dislike for enthusiasm. And so it's okay to feel a little bit of energy when we worship this Jesus because he's the one that can bring a woman into relationship with him that was far from him and he's the one that can heal deaf ears because jesus is so good and we want to we want to be a church that is committed to both the centrality of worship but also the eternality of worship this is something that we're going to be doing for a very long time and so we get to practice here on earth before we enter into that scene that we read in revelation 5. And what we hope is what happens here, the moments of worship that we have here, fuels us out there. Because worship is more than singing a song, it's a way that we live life. It's more than a moment now, but it's a lifestyle that we live. And so we want to worship God. And So let's stand. And uh, as always, we have um, the Lord's Table available in all four corners. Um, For anybody that's a follower of Jesus, this is a way to remember and worship Jesus We have people in all four corners that want to pray. They don't have to pray. We don't have to like drag them here. They want to pray for you. So you don't have to be in a crisis in order to get prayer. And then also um, we have this whole front that's open because sometimes it's good to change our posture, to symbolize what God's changing in our heart. You don't have to be in crisis to come up here either. We want to worship authentically. We want to worship in spirit and truth. And so let's worship the Jesus that can make dead things come back to life. Lord, we worship you. And Father, we invite you into this space. Holy Spirit, would you be here? We want to worship you in such a powerful way. It's in your name we pray.